The tragic events unfolding in the Middle East have commanded news headlines, but are the commodity markets reacting to them? All this and more on Freight Up. Freight Up! Hello and welcome back to Freight Up. My name's Fernanda and I'll be your host as we navigate the seas of freight and commodities. This week's episode, we discuss risk of sentiment in markets that are very reactive to geopolitical news. We'll have an update from Archie Smith talking about all things oil. James Robinson has come crawling back to tell us all about iron ore and maybe some other news. And our head of environmental products is back to tell us all about the latest developments in FISE. Let's talk fuel with Archie Smith. We've obviously had a lot of tragedy this week, and it sounds like the markets are reacting to it. What's been going on in fuel? The markets ha- reacted straight away. Uh, Monday trading opened like 4% higher than where Friday settled. And I think we were in the front month future, we went up to like over 89 a barrel or around 89 a barrel, if I remember correctly, at its highest. And kind of the initial reaction was, it was this wasn't really any change. There was no real change to fundamentals in the oil market. I mean, Israel, yes, they are a producer of oil, but not in the size that would fundamentally affect supply, the global supply. So I think the reason for that initial spike at the beginning of the week was more a premium on the risk of the conflict escalating. Because if it was to escalate, that's when we could see it affecting fundamentals. Some of the larger Middle Eastern powers get involved, who are the big producers, Iran, uh, UAE, etc. Then, yeah, then we could probably see crude climbing higher. That was the beginning of the week. Then kind of Tuesday, Wednesday came. Well, in fact, yesterday it really started to come off. I think the market has very much priced in what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in Israel. It was priced in pretty swiftly. I don't think people were too worried. And I, I think what kind of, compared to how they were on Monday, and I think what really changed yesterday was Saudi's comments about how they're trying to not only provide stability to the market, to the price of oil, but also provide uh, stability to the conflict itself. I think that kind of reassured a lot of participants and the market spotlight as it does switch from one thing to the other went back to oh poor demand outlook high interest rates so yeah we saw crude coming back off yesterday to settle around 84 dollars a barrel pretty much wiped out anything that was gained from the initial start of the conflict so yeah it's been quite a roller coaster i mean brent has been trading really choppily the past few days i think you know like i said everyone's been a little bit on edge tensions there but I think the pivot point is if any of the larger powers get involved in this conflict, if Iran were to step in, et cetera, et cetera, then that's what would really fundamentally affect the market. I mean, where we are now, it's, I think, yeah, like I said, it's very much priced in. And something else uh, to mention that kind of helped soften the prices, the API report that came out last night, American Petroleum Institution. Which... I, I got that right. <laughs> <laughs> I should know that. We, we um, hope so. But we... actually, this is a great time to mention. Yeah. We've moved the podcast launch days to Fridays so that we could bring you up-to-date API data. So without further ado, you have. RG? Yeah, so the API came out last night. It showed a, a massive build in crude US stockpiles of, I think, just over 12 million barrels compared to last week. Was Last week was a drawback of, I think, 4.2 million barrels. Obviously, this week's been a huge build. So that helped soften the prices as well. A higher supplier, naturally the basics, the price was softer. And I guess it took a little bit of spotlight off of what was going on. 
So yeah, that's what's happening in the crude. The fuel market wasn't majorly upset by what was going on in the Middle East. It's, it's, I mean, it's, I wouldn't say it's been stable, but it's it, there's been no kind of dramatic changes apart from, I think the only one I could really comment on would be the high sulfur East West. That's really recovered from this month's lows. I think, you know, I mean, last month it traded down to minus 33, meaning the Singapore high sulfur grade is $33 at a discount to the European equivalent. That was right down to minus 33. This month's low was like minus 18, minus $17. And today it's actually traded flat, zero. So obviously both fuel Whoa. grades being the same. So that's really been chopping and changing around. But I don't think that that's a direct correlation with what's happened in Israel and Gaza. I think that was just happening anyway. Market behaviors, traders factoring in movements in the cracks, etc. I do know on the physical side of things that when that east-west was a lot lower, that Singapore basically just had ample supply of oil. It had a lot of flows still coming in from Russia of the high sulfur grade. And I just know yeah, on, on the physical point of view that they their supply was higher, which obviously is going to pressure that price downwards compared to the European equivalent grade, which I think is still suffering a little bit from a lack of Russian supply. It did get some help. I think we, I think I spoke about it on, on last week's episode about the uh, pipeline, yeah. one of the recent pipeline openings, which is transferring a lot of high sulfur crude. Fuel, very low sulfur fuel cracks are stronger. The spreads are pushing as well. Fuel market structure, a little bit stronger today. But nothing out of the ordinary, I think, general normal market behavior, I would say so. Is it normal for it to chop and change like that? The East-West, no, but everything else oh, yeah, okay. is normal market I was about behavior. to say no, normal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> other than the high sulfur yeah, East-West. Yeah. The high sulfur East-West is, I wouldn't say it's normal for it to chop and change around, but it is, out of all the contracts, extremely volatile. Oh, it, okay. it, it, like, it, it does this quite a lot. It swings like up to 10 bucks a day sometimes. I think that's the zero it's, that got me. I was like, whoa. Yes, exactly. So obviously we're up, I think two, two weeks ago, whenever it was, was it was trading minus 18s around there. And yeah, literally traded flat today. And then it traded flat and then went straight back to like minus four. So it's like a $4 gap, just gaps like that. And it's, it's really hard to keep track of. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, yeah. Luckily I exactly. have you to do it for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I try. <laughs> so Arch, I know that you sprinkled it in a bit but you're still not going to escape this you just mm. gave us our weekly recap thank you no problem what should we look out for in the coming week from a fundamental point of view just keep an eye on what's going on geopolitically with israel and gaza i spoke about it earlier how we're at a bit of a pivot point where if it stays as it is and it's very much as israel against hamas then the market will be fairly unchanged. Like I mentioned briefly earlier, if some of the larger powers start to get involved, that's when, and, and if there is signs of escalation, then oil could kind of fall out the window. If there's anything to keep an eye on, it's just the current affairs of what's going on over there and what the other governments are doing and what the other governments are saying. Obviously, so far, I've had Saudi Arabia come in as a little bit of a peacemaker, whatever you want to say, which is great. But yeah, I think we just got to see how it goes from here. Thank you so much, Archie. And that's A Smith 7 out. <laughs> that's my ice chat. That's your ice Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you very much, Amanda. And you haven't heard from him in a minute, but James Robinson has some big news for you. So you're moving into a super cool new product, but... Do you, just for old time's sake, 
still have an iron ore update this week. Uh, I do indeed. Oh, (laughs) amazing. Yes. There's actually been some pretty uh, substantial development in the iron ore market. Really? Yeah. Last week was obviously quite quiet with Golden Week. Everyone on vacation. Exactly. Like liquidity taking a real hit. So we headed into Golden Week with the market trading at 120.45. And whilst during Golden, we do tend to see a little bit of gapping just because the liquidity takes a bit of a hit. What is gapping? Gapping is where rather than going from 114.10 to 114.30 to 114.40, like and gradually going up, it just goes from 114 to 116. Ah. You know, it, just, it just moves. I learn finance jargon mm. every day. Yeah. <laughs> So we headed into Golden Week with the market trading at 120.45. Liquidity obviously taking a bit of a hit, seeing quite a lot of gapping on flat price over that week. And that pulled the market down to a low of 109 and a quarter. So, so yeah, so, so $10 sell-off. So really quite significant. This week, we kicked things off with a largely risk-off sentiment prevailing throughout the market. That is largely derived off the Israel news that we all woke up to earlier this week. But since then, we have seen a pretty strong recovery on flat price. The market is currently trading with NOV at 114.75, and that is primarily on stimulus. So over the course of this year... You have to put five pounds on the stimulus yeah, later it's now. Back, it's back. <laughs> um, so the general attitude over the course of this year has been, if we're going to see a, a reversal in, in China's prospects more broadly, we're going to have to see sort of a bazooka on, on stimulus. And that bazooka may actually now be coming. So the CCP is currently weighing up its options and the number that keeps floating around is 1 trillion yen. So the government is effectively looking at issuing a trillion yen of sovereign debt in order to fund uh, greater infrastructure spending throughout the economy. It's significant for a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, that is a serious number. That's not trimming certain interest rates 10 points. That is a very significant statement. The second reason is because it would have a pretty sizable impact on the budget deficit. The government put in place a 3% cap on its deficit in March, and this would definitely widen that beyond that capacity. The other thing that's worth mentioning, forecasts are changing. Like basically all year we've been like, we've seen banks and intergovernment bodies lowering forecasting really consistently, basically month after month from 6% to 5, 5.5%, 5%, and then... 4.7%, few of those banks are basically rounding it back up to 5%. They're saying like this isn't potentially as bad as we thought it was. The IMF has said that they think that China is still going to miss that growth target. But yeah, basically this stimulus is coming about because of that 5% growth target and the government's basically worried that it's not going to hit it. And taking a break from saving the mangroves, here is our head of environmental products himself, So you have some exciting news for us and for our listeners. What's been going on with the Carbon Desk? What's been going on? As everyone knows, we actually have weekly auctions that we have created for people to participate in. We call them the silent auctions because people participate by showing their prices in discretion. That's been going very well, but we've actually been approached by the leading exchange in Asia. SGX, who has a new offset company that is promoting only carbon throughout the world called CIX, which is owned by Tamasek Holdings, which is the sovereign fund of Singapore, DBS, and Standard Chartered. 
and one over, which I've escaped me right now. <laughs> and they've built a carbon exchange, which is a, it's, I think they're actually very f- uh, forward thinking because they're uh, introducing carbon to the region and promoting carbon offsets. Now, they've approached me about doing a partnership to be able to give the customers and clients the ability to clear our auction, which That's is actually amazing. quite a smart thing to do. Because one barrier that we had placed on ourselves was that we had a minimum volume participation of 25,000 tons. Which I'm assuming... Which is quite yeah. significant, really. It's not a small amount of volume. The reason is because in the carbon market, the transactions are bilateral, meaning that you need to do KYC and documentation, lots of lawyers, etc. So you need to have a higher volume to make it worthy. Now, with the introduction of CIX, this, we've reduced that volume to only 5,000 tons. That's incredible. Which gives the ability now that if you want to participate in our auctions, you can participate with a minimum of 5,000 tons. And if you do get matched, we will clear it through CIX. So there's no more KYC. There's no more documentation. There's no more lawyers. So <laughs> Everyone likes to so hear that, that uh, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it gives the ability now for people to participate and it's actually a seamless process through to the exchange. All you need to do is be a member of CIX and also a customer of FIS and you can participate as, as much as you like. And that's also the great thing about that is CIX has a span of over, what, 1,500 customers growing across so many different industries. So it gives us the marketability and communication outside our realms, which is also really interesting. So we might get participation from companies in Mexico, in Canada, in Vietnam, in Australia. So it opens up the doors for people to participate freely and confidently within the process. So you're just trying to get everyone to save the mangroves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll have a lot of mangroves in the auction process, of course. That's our love child, really. No. But yeah, that's it, pretty much it. So I know you don't just deal in voluntary carbon. What else do you have going on? What other plates are you juggling here? We at FIS now are also expanding our product base. So we're not just looking at carbon credits. Yeah. Because you could break the carbon market or environmental market into, let's say, three categories. So compliance, let's call that EUAs. Semi-compliance, which is a, there's a lot of acronyms in our market. Okay. (laughs) So bear with me. IREX, International Renewable Certificates. Now, what these do is these apply to companies' scope two emissions. If I'm using electricity, of course, you don't know what's coming through your poles and wires, right? So in order to be a green company, you have to actually be able to prove that you're buying green power. Although the, the power coming through the poles and wires to turn on your lights may come from coal, gas, as an example, if you purchase enough IREC credits from a renewable uh, source, which gives them the ability to generate, then you can say you're a green company. So these are international renewable credits. So a company in, let's say, France, an operation in Malaysia, and they've built a, I don't know, a car manufacturing plant. They can buy Malaysian IREX in order to help, first of all, Malaysia, the community, to build more renewable generation facilities. So that's actually really interesting. So that links countries that we wouldn't, we wouldn't even imagine, or companies that you wouldn't imagine doing transactions from France to Malaysia, from Brazil to Australia, from Japan to China. So that's where that happens. Then also we're doing the international voluntary carbon credits, which is not really compliance, but who knows, watch this space, right? (laughs) They maybe are compliance because the thing about voluntary carbon credits is also is that what's happening now is companies are being pressured by either shareholders, by their banks, by their insurance companies to go green or to manage their ESGs. So 
as a publicly listed company on the LSC, you must have an ESG, right? You must have an ESG direction and that's set, set in stone. So you could theoretically argue that these credits are not really any longer voluntary because if you don't do the right thing, then you, the shareholders will, will start jumping up and down. Share price could be affected. Insurance companies won't insure you. Your banks start increasing the loan requirements. So are they really voluntary? I think you just dropped a bit of foreshadowing on us. Hmm. There you go. <laughs> and especially if you want to be like Theo and start saving the mangroves, we just made it a whole lot easier for you. Exactly. That's exactly what we've done. So there's always cool stuff happening in carbon. What does the future look like, I guess, is my question. Well, I think it's bright. Like there's a carbon event on this week in London and everyone's you know, a bit sad about that. The market isn't uh, as active as it should be. But the important thing about carbon is, or the way carbon is going to progress is going to be through regulation and through uh, moves in policy changes. And they're starting to, to happen. There's these moves in uh, what they call Article 6, which we'll go, won't go into detail, but that, what basically that is, is part of the Paris Agreement. There are countries are starting to sign agreements between each other bilaterally, saying that if I'm in uh, Denmark, I've signed an agreement with Zimbabwe, then I can actually start participating and trading offsets from Zimbabwe for Denmark. As legislation comes in, these sort of agreements are put in place. That gives companies the, the more confidence that they actually are doing the right thing and purchasing the right credits. Because there's been a lot of stick in, with articles in The Guardian about how carbon offsets are bad and there's greenwashing and green this and green that. It's all good. But the important thing is that that, that sort of stigma like, is maybe it's to an extent has a role to play because it makes people think, okay, we should be doing the right thing and not trying to be uh, a bit shifty and trying to get away with things. <laughs> but that, that happens in all commodity markets. I mean, I, I sound a bit old when I say this, but when I started trading in electricity in Australia, trading was done bilaterally between two big fat men drinking a bottle of wine and doing these enormous calendar transactions. But let's fast forward 20 years. We've got futures markets, we've got traders, brokers, we've got market makers, we've got funds. So the liquidity happens. So I wouldn't get ahead of ourselves. Carbon's just going to be like any other commodity. It will mature, participants will come in, confidence will come in. And this little piece, the auction, is just one piece in that equation to give us some more confidence to grow the market. Yeah, it sounds like you really need both. You're going to need systematic changes in whatever industry, yep. and you're going to need some of these projects. And only through the use of both, we can achieve the goals that we need to achieve, really. But I think the thing that fascinates me the most about your market is that it's almost like witnessing the early movers, early adopters situation play out because it is such a young market relatively as far as activity goes. It's really fascinating to me to watch you shape the market. Yeah. And so I get to learn a lot about it through you. So I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Theo, as always, thank you so much for dropping in the studio. It was a pleasure talking to you and you're always doing cool stuff. So no yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Well, that's it for us this week. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you miss us too much between now and next Friday, then make sure to visit us on FreightUpPodcast.com, where you can listen to old episodes, read show notes, or leave us a comment. Until next time. Freight Up! Freight up.